0: Let us pray. God of us all, take our ears and hear through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts, set us on fire. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. So this is an old story told of the the king of Siam. And you know it's an old story because uh, nobody calls Thailand Siam anymore. But the story's told that the king of Siam that ancient tropical country, uh, was one evening entertaining the Dutch ambassador. And throughout the evening, the king was enjoying the stories this ambassador told of his far-off country. Finally, though, the ambassador went too far. He told the king that in his home country, it got cold. It got so cold that water would become hard so hard that even an elephant could walk on it. Imagine that, an elephant walking on water. Well, this was too much for the king. And as much as he'd enjoyed all the other stories that the ambassador had told, he couldn't believe this. He turned to him and he said, hitherto I have believed the strange things you have told me because I look upon you as a sober and fair man but now I am sure you lie. An elephant walking on water? Who could believe that? Well, this morning, our gospel reading from Matthew 14 is a story of Jesus walking on water. There's a lot to like about Jesus. There's a lot to love about Jesus. The stories that he told of the vision he held of the kingdom of heaven... The compassion, uh, the concern, the courage that he showed. But walking on water? What sober and fair person could believe that? Well, this summer during this series, Come to the Water, uh, we've heard a lot of stories from the Bible about water. And most of the stories in the Bible about water are miracle stories. We've heard the story of Jesus calming the sea. We heard the story of Naaman being cured just by going and washing in the River Jordan. Next week, we'll hear the story of Jonah swallowed up by the whale three days in the belly of the great Leviathan and then spit up onto ground safely. And later, a story of Moses striking a rock in the desert and water gushing forth. And of course, there are a bunch of others the Israelites escaping from slavery in Egypt to freedom when the Red Sea parts and they walk across it on dry land. Jesus turning water into wine. They're remarkable stories, they're puzzling stories. For some of us, some of the time, they are very troubling stories. In fact, Thomas Jefferson was so troubled by some of these stories that he uh, created his own Bible. He took the New Testament, he took the Gospels and literally, with a razor, cut out all the stories of miracles and then just pasted back everything he was left with. The Jefferson Bible. Jesus walking on the water is one of those stories that Jefferson left on the editing room floor. Now, truth be told, walking on water as a miracle is sort of a, a parlor trick. I mean, it's pretty cool, but I mean it isn't exactly saving the world. But people liberated from oppression drought-stricken people finding clean water, hungry people being fed, sick people being healed. Those are the kind of miracles we'd all like to see. So I'd like to take a closer look at this story today because, as it turns out, even elephants can walk on water, and you can too. Me too. Matthew's Gospel, and this seems true as Mark and Luke and John, Matthew's Gospel tells the story of Jesus who embodied God's will on earth as in heaven? Jesus is what God's will looks like, what God intends. Jesus shows us the kind of life together for which we have all been created. Now, we tend to think of heaven as, as distant. I mean, heaven is out there, it's up there, it's later, it's the place you hope you go when you die rather than the other hotter place. And by grace, I trust that will be true. And we tend to think of Earth as being like a machine. I mean, that's how Thomas Jefferson thought of it. Jefferson was a deist. He thought of the Earth as a timepiece that the divine clockmaker had wound up and then left to run on its own. Tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. But that leaves God on the outside of everything we know, of everything that we experience. And miracles then become stories of God popping in from somewhere distant doing something strange, something odd, something kind of bizarre, and then up and leaving again. So if heaven is distant, and if earth is a machine, that account of miracles can be kind of hard to believe, and we'd be tempted like Jefferson just to leave it out altogether. But what if heaven is not so distant? What if heaven is wherever God's love and peace and joy and justice are found? And what if earth is not just a machine a world created and tended by God. And what if the thin places that Celtic Christians talk about are true, those places where time and eternity are close enough to touch? That's what Matthew believed. And the story that he's telling and that Mark and Luke and John are telling is that heaven and earth have actually met in Jesus. And the stories of the gospel are what it looks like when God's will is done on earth As in heaven, people have what they need to thrive. Hungry people have food and sick people find healing and oppressed people are set free. People who've been marginalized and left out find a new home in the beloved community, what Jesus called the kingdom of heaven. People who failed are given a fresh start. Leaders who've ignored what people need are held to account. And running through it all is a love that is so strong it can never allow for violence. These stories, this gospel, this good news invites us to believe, to trust, to hope that the God of creation, the God embodied in Jesus is not outside, is not distant, is, far, is not far off, but is God with us, always at work, making the world uh, and everything and everyone therein whole, sometimes in mysterious, puzzling ways, sometimes in, in winsome and wondrous ways sometimes in very ordinary ways. And we are called to be part of it. We are called to follow in the way of Jesus. We're called to share in the work that he's begun. In fact, we have to. God's will can't be done on earth as in heaven without us. What I mean is that God's will, God's intention, God's dream is a creation in which everyone and everything thrives. That's the vision of shalom, of God's holy and just peace that we read about in what we call the Old Testament. And the means is love. Love is how it can happen. Loving God, loving ourselves, loving each other, loving our enemies, loving all of creation. But we all know that love can never be imposed. Love can never be enforced. You can't make anyone accept love. You can't make anyone be loved or live in love. And that means God can't set things right. God can't make the world whole. God can't clean up the mess we make by divine fiat. Instead, God comes to us in Jesus. At Advent, we often sing, "O come, O come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel is a Hebrew word that means literally the with us God. God comes to us in Christ. Jesus who was immersed in a particular community, a particular place, particular time, particular people. Jesus who lived in love died for love who was raised by love that incarnate that earthy that human jesus calls us to trust enough in that love god's love that we will follow him now that's pretty daunting when we read a story like this i mean how did jesus walk on the decidedly unfrozen waters of the sea of galilee i don't know Peter, the great apostle, Peter the rock on whom the church would be founded, Peter tried it, and even Peter didn't get very far. Maybe more pointedly, though, why in the Gospels did Jesus cure some people, but not cure all the people? Why didn't he cure my sister? I don't know. But I do know that we have the capacity for the everyday variety of miracles. And earlier I mentioned that story of Jesus turning water into wine. And if you don't know that story, you can read about it in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 2. Uh, Jesus is at a wedding at Cana, or Cana. It must have been a good wedding. It must have been a fun party because they ran out of wine. And Jesus's mother, Mary, asked him to make some more. And so he had the stewards fill these big stone cisterns with gallons of water, and then he turned it into wine, good wine which is a pretty cool trick. But St. Augustine reminds us that God does that trick every year. The water that falls as rain irrigates the vines in the field and grapes grow. And we have a part to play in that miracle. To tend the fields, to harvest and crush the grapes, to ferment the juice, to bottle the wine. And every year it is always a remarkable, wondrous very cool miracle that's the way it works God partnering with people like us in the particular places that we find ourselves taking all the training we can get combining with all the prayers that we can say and fueling us with the spirit and then sending us out sending us out to share in God's ministry of healing sending us out as doctors and nurses and social workers and lab techs for the healing work that we think of as normal, but that sometimes goes mysteriously beyond it. Some of us are called in the same way to be, to be farmers, to be county agents, to be grocers and cooks and volunteers at the food bank so everyone can be fed. And some of us are called to be advocates or protesters or letter writers or prayers uh, to work for justice. And all of us, always, are called to be part of the everyday miracle of loving God and loving our neighbors as ourselves, It is not always easy. And so as I've been reading this story, uh, being the sober and fair man that I am, uh, this story has pushed me to ask, or to think at least about a couple of questions. So first, you know, in this story, When the disciples see Jesus coming to them on the water, they say, it is a ghost. They are looking for any explanation to make sense of what's happening in terms of the way they understand the world. But what this story tells us is that to believe in Jesus is gonna change the way that we understand the world and change the way that we live within the world. So first thing, this story challenges me and challenges us to rethink the assumption we often make that the world is only a machine. Now of course the earth and the universe operate in ways that are orderly and predictable and observable and repeatable, that's the whole basis of science. And all of us are grateful for people like Galileo and Isaac Newton and Marie Curie and Einstein who figured out at least some of the way that it works. But if we only regard the earth and the universe and our relationship to it, as mechanistic, as devoid of the divine. I worry that it's too easy for us to reduce life to a series of calculations about cause and effect and cost and benefits and efficiency and outcomes become primary values and everything becomes a commodity to exploit Uh, and even people are valued only in so far as they are a helpful means to a productive end. So the question that I find myself asking as I read the story is what are the ways that thinking of the world only as a machine limits our capacity to see this as God's creation? What are the ways it limits our capacity to see the wonders, the beauty, the abundance of the gifts that God has given for all of us? What are the ways that it limits our ability to see the inherent value versus the utilitarian value of everyone and everything. You know, a couple of Fridays ago, I went to a memorial uh, gathering uh, right over in the parking lot of Southeast Uplift for a man who had been living in his van. He lived in his van right out here on Main Street. He was parked there for a number of months. Most days I could see his van from my uh, desk in my office back there. I would go out and talk to him uh, every now and then. We had friendly conversations. I never pressed him very hard. So really, all I knew about him was, I knew his name. Um, I knew that he clearly had a tough go of it. And he knew he had a sister, and that was it. And from the outside looking in, if you're only calculating efficiency and outcomes, he didn't have much value to add to any productive endeavor. But at that service, I met his sister, and I met his brother, and I met his nieces and his nephew and his brother, and I learned about his parents. And the friends that were there told a lot of stories, and there was a lot of love in that circle. I don't ever want to undervalue that everyday miracle. Second, this story um, pushes me, pushes us, to ask about our fears. Peter was walking on the water and then he noticed a strong wind became frightened and he sank. So what are we afraid of? What are we afraid of as we're trying to follow the way of Jesus? And maybe more so, how uh, or in what ways do we let our fears control us? Because reacting to our fears is a terrible way to live. It makes us anxious. It makes us suspicious. It stifles hope and poison relationships. Now to be sure, there's plenty to be afraid of. The gospel asks us to trust, to believe, to hope that God's love, God's perfect love, God's love that was embodied in Jesus, that that love is stronger than our fears. It has the capacity to cast out our fears. So that rather than reacting to what we're afraid of, we can respond to love. We can live in love. So we're left to ask, can we believe that God so loved the world? So the next time you go to an ice rink, the next time you're out hiking and you walk across a field of snow, which is to say the next time you walk on water, remember that we live in God's creation, a world full of wonders and mystery and the power of God. So let us go and live out uh, the everyday miracles of compassion and forgiveness and healing, of peacemaking and mercy and kindness and love. For God's will is done on earth as in heaven. Amen.